Welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. Uh, it's been a while, but we're very excited to be back here, whether you're listening in your ears or watching with your eyeballs, as we like to say. And I'm joined, of course, by my regular co-hosts, Stu and Tim. How are you guys? Stu? I'm really well. Thank you, Joel. Excellent. That's good. It's good to have you back. Uh, Tim, <laughs> I just realized that we haven't resolved the problem of you not being able to see me properly because no. of that microphone on. <laughs> we had all this time off and we still couldn't fix it. I haven't fixed the set. That's yeah. all right. How are you two anyway? I'm doing very well, thanks, mate. You guys are doing a good job of wearing a nice black. shade of black. <laughs> very good. As I've done it again, always um, criticising what you're wearing. It's what the uh, listeners come to expect, Observing. Yeah, it's one of the right. semiotics of this yeah. program. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I think both on your screens at the moment, you've got um, chat GPT. So I was wondering, like, what are you actually doing on chat GPT? You could, if you could let the listeners in or viewers, what have you actually been doing in the, in the last five minutes on chat GPT? Well, I, I've been thinking, I, I've been thinking. Okay. <laughs> that. I'm trying to get my head around this as probably everybody is. And I think... I'm not going to be completely helpful with my thoughts on ChatGPT, mm. but I'm happy to share my journey with mm. where I'm currently at with it. If you haven't heard of ChatGTP... GPT. G, there you go. Mm. There, like a GP, like a doctor. Ah, GPT, yes. GP. Okay, I've got it. Okay. <laughs> so my thought on it is it's an AI engine that is quite terrifying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to be able to be very clever, but I'm not sure how accurate it is and I'm also not sure of its usefulness. So mm. Tim and I have just been playing around with what can it do and uh, one of the things I've been thinking is I use Google to search the internet for things and I thought I wonder if I can use this chat GPT to search the internet for things. So uh, we've been thinking we'd like to talk about Paul Van a little bit today as one of the interesting topics mm -hmm. that Tim's brought up. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were just asking ChatGPT <laughs> to give us some uh, insights into some of his work. So, Tim, you've brought up something that it's spat out. I don't know if it's been helpful or not. What have you oh, found? I've got no idea. I haven't looked at it yet. But um, <laughs> now this was uh, one of the things um, that we've realised uh, ChatGPT can do is... Um, give you summaries of books and articles and um, tell you, you know, key statements. Um, not exactly sure how it's working behind the scenes. but We don't know if it's accurate either. We don't know if it's accurate. We haven't fact-checked this yeah. yet. But, um, yeah, one of the things that we will talk about as we go on the episode is um, the, the Paul Van Doren story, which is the story of uh, Van's shoes um, and the company that kind of came out of that. It was a biography I read towards the end of last year which I found fascinating because I just I really like the brand Vans and um, they've got a lot of cultural um, meaning for me. And uh, yeah, so I just asked the chatbot to give me some uh, quotes from the book and it's spat out 10 and it, they're looking You've read pretty accurate. You've read the I've book. I've read the book. Yeah, right. yeah, I've read the book. And they, and they certainly um, look like they're straight from there. Certainly the right tone. Um, you have to go back and fact check it um, to be certain certainly wouldn't want to you know publish anything official with just this information but it's um it's a great start and it helps you to just get a bit of an understanding and one of the things and, and you've got some thoughts on this joel is how using these tools as the next iteration of research helps um you know things have moved a lot um in uh, even our lifetimes in how you actually do research and how you uh, find things. Um, I 
I did a talk once a few years ago on technology and said, you know, I was I was born in the early 1980s and we were the, uh, I've heard it said that we were the last generation to remember pre-internet. Mm. Um, and that, that's certainly true when I think about how did I find information for school assignments or just curiosity. You know, when I was a child, it was books and that was the, your only option. Did you go um, to the library? Yeah, we went to the mm. library. Uh, we had a, a set of um, children's Britannica yep. um, at home that my parents had picked up at some point. And, uh, and so you, you just kind of flick through those when you're bored and you just find out things or if there's a particular topic you were looking at, mm-hmm. you had to, you know, talk for 90 seconds in class about lions. Yeah, that's where you go. You go to L in the Britannica and you'd look at lions mm. and you'd find a few information and try and put in your own words. And um, and then, you know, by the late 90s and I'm in high school, um, this, you know, this magical a silver disc in, um, in Carter 97 comes out and it was a CD-ROM. In Carter 97. Yeah, wow, could, that's uh, a blast from the past. All of a sudden, all of this you know, this massive bookshelf worth of material is on one silver CD. Mm. Uh, and you just think this is amazing. You can type in the search function and I can mm. search up Lion mm. um, and find all mm. the information and whatever it is. Um, and then by the time I hit uni, uh, all of my lecturers are freaked out about this brand new thing called Wikipedia. Um, and they're like, you can't trust it. It's terrible. Um, you know, you've got to keep doing your research manually. Um, and of course, Wikipedia is now, you know, sort of the, the first place you go. It's, it's always the first thing that Google spits up at you is if you want to know on a topic. Um, and again, kind of like chat GPT, it, you wouldn't, you don't quote Wikipedia um, in, when you're publishing something you know, of, of weightiness, um, like a uni assignment or something, but it gives you a really great background. Um, and the, the fact that it's edited on the cloud by multiple editors actually adds to its value in some way. Um, and it's pretty well footnoted. So you, you get a good broad understanding. Okay, here's what the topic is. I think I kind of got the broad brush jokes and then I can follow the footnotes at the bottom to check out, or at least when I then go to the library or go searching on, you know, Google Books or you know whatever it is, um, I can start. I know the right terms. I've, I've got the, the right ballpark of what I'm looking for. Um, and you know, super early days with these chatbots, but I think it's the same kind of thing. If you if you use it, understanding what it is, um, and you go, okay, this is this is going to give me some broad things. It's going to point me in the right direction. It's going to frame the conversation for me. And I can go, okay, with that in mind, I can now go dig deeper into the actual sources. I can fact check it. I can whatever it is. And, and you can put another layer over top of it because you can say it might be biased one way or the other. So you might want to look at one of the sources that it gives and see if there's any alternative voices being spoken about. And then that'll help you to work out if it's got a bit of bias behind it. Absolutely, as well. yeah. And people are playing with that all the time. And that's mm. a lot of the news stories are about, you know, the implicit bias or mm. the explicit bias that mm. um, ChatGPT seems to have. Mm. Um, and because it is only hit on historical stuff. That's the thing. It's only uh, currently I think ChatGPT is only up to twenty twenty one. I don't think it does anything more from there. So it's yeah, that's right. It, it, it can't reference. My understanding is it can't reference. Uh, live documents it's reading what has been pre-programmed mm. into it mm. so it won't have opinions on current events mm. um, you know it won't be able to tell you about new publications or new artists or you know whatever it is mm. um, so if you ask you know what's the back catalogue of you know Kanye um, it would give you the back catalogue 
as much as it has been yep. told up to that point. It's not, not what scouting he's recording. That's why you've still got to do your own research because you've got to be mm. able to check it and you've got to be able to see yeah, if there's yeah. any more to it. And I think that's where I see it as just like many other things in the internet. The internet just commoditizes things that can be done in the background or can skip a middleman or anything like that. So that's just been the story of the internet, hasn't it? It's just made things faster. I mean, I think about how I shop now is very different to how I would have shopped 10 years ago because like my wife's birthday is coming up next week and I'm like, oh, I can still wait a few days and or I, I'm like still figuring out what I'm going to get her from, from Lorna Jane because she wants some active wear. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, but Karen, I, hope you yeah. enjoy active wear. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, I've already asked her if she wants some. <laughs> but um, the, like, the thing is like, oh, I've got a couple more days because I know it's going to turn up in time for the, for the birthday anyway. Whereas if you think back, even like online shopping, maybe even five or six years ago, wasn't that effective and that fast at fulfilling orders but it's the same thing i think with chat gpt is it'll do all the heavy lifting in terms of the things you have to do like the the menial tasks that you have to do for example um you know if you want to research something it'll summarize some books for you so you can know i know where my direction of research can head because i didn't have to go and find and search those things i mean um we have a friend uh one of our brothers michael gray who doesn't he goes, goes to a different church now but he's a wedding photographer and he is editing, he's getting AI to edit the photos in the way that he wants to, which has saved him nigh on seven or eight hours during the week of no editing all the photos that he's doing. So mm. I think that's where I see it, and I'm not an expert in it, but that's where I see it at the moment is where is it like saving lots of time rather than I don't think it can write anywhere near as well as a, a really good human writer can, can write yeah, yeah. it's not if you you know you read something that you really enjoy like the vans book that you're talking about tim and you would like i really enjoyed the story how it was told to me there's the emotion behind it when you're reading the text i don't think chat gpt is going to be able to yet do that well no and i, I think that's where we need to recognize the limitations yeah. and also what are our values and so if if we're constantly pushing for the value of efficiency, mm -hmm. what are the what are the some other values that we're missing out on? So I could um, I could ask it, yeah, what's the main plot point of the Count of Monte Cristo? <laughs> yeah, which is like fifteen hundred pages long, um, and it can spit out, you know, the Chat GPT version of it in a couple of paragraphs. Oh, here's the main thing of what goes on. Um, now. What does that mean? Does it do that accurately? I've got no idea. Let me ask it. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll ask it. You, you can, can, you can yeah, ask yeah. it while I'm chatting. <laughs> um, but uh, if if what what is what does good look like? You know, I was asking what's the value. So if the value is for me to feel like I know the plot point of the Count of Monte Cristo, then it's done my job for me. Yeah. Uh, has it given me the experience of spending? I don't, I don't know how long it took me. It took me like six months to read the book slowly over time um then no like i've i've missed out on the experience of reading a 1500 mm. page mm. novel um and the emotional impact that that had you know the ups and downs of the plot and the bits that are just dead boring and why on earth is he talking about this for so long and then oh here we are back at the action and you know there's there's that kind of thing and so um with with technology that makes some things more efficient um is that always the best thing to be striving for i think there's some good arguments you know and and it's going to be different for each p different people but efficiency is not always uh, a net gain depending on what the particular task was mm -hmm. and particularly on the 
person as well. Um, maybe a good analogy might be cooking. So um, I don't enjoy the process of cooking. I just want to eat something <laughs> yummy at the end. Um, and so we bought a Thermomix many years ago. Um, and that's awesome because it's a technology that does the takes a lot of the effort and energy out of the process of cooking. And I can just stuck things in and I can hit it and attend to it every five to 10 minutes, depending on the recipe, um, and go and do other stuff. And at the end, I've got a meal that's yummy and I really enjoy, um, but I haven't had to go through the process of cooking. But people who love the process of cooking hate the thing, and justifiably, <laughs> because it takes all the joy out of the the chopping, the pasting, mm, the grinding, the, you know, mm. the, if you love being in front of the stove and you love doing all of that bits and pieces and playing with spices and herbs, you're going to hate the Thermomix because it's taking, it's, it's making it super efficient, mm. something that you actually enjoy doing. Mm. Um, and so I think it's the possible the same thing here. If you, I'm someone who I genuinely enjoy sitting and reading the full text and of, of nonfiction books. Um, uh, and so I love getting into the argument. I love seeing the nuances. I love reading the footnotes. Um, and so just hitting it up for give me the cliff notes on such and such, there will be times when that's super helpful for me. Um, and there's other times where it's like, oh, it's kind of taking the joy out. And just mm. because I know what this book was about in three minutes instead of 30 hours, mm. was that a net win? Well, it depends on the book. It depends mm. on the personality those kinds of things. I think that's really important to think about because, you know, some people are talking about now like, oh, we'll just have relationships with AI robots and all that kind of thing. But it misses the, I think, the essence of us as humans. And I suppose the question I was going to ask you guys and see what you thought um, was, I think exactly what you're saying, Tim, speaks to a deeper meaning of us as humans and what we created to be. And obviously, this is a Christian podcast and you can put a Christian perspective on that. But what I'm going to go, if you're happy to, Stu, if you're happy to answer this first, like what do, what do you think that means? Because I think we can continually push for this, strive for this efficiency. But in the end, it, it, uh, it doesn't put as much importance on being a human and the, mm. kind of the interactions and relationships that we have. What do you think? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, I think my journey with this stuff is I've been reading uh, up on different ideas about AI for a little while. Um, I'm interested in reading some futurists who predict the future. And my overall impression of this chat GPT was not surprised, but, oh, it's arrived. I think that's how I, I feel about it. Because uh, there are futurists like Ray, I don't know if I get his name right here, Ray Kurzweil. Kurzweil, maybe some of our listeners could correct. Kurzweil, maybe that's how you pronounce it, but it's K-U-R-Z-W-E-I-L. Oh, wheel, sorry, Kurzweil. Kurzweil. Kurzweil, maybe. Sounds like it's German. Maybe, maybe. Anyway, he's been predicting um, this idea that AI is going to come along and it's going to change a lot of stuff and not only change a lot of stuff, but it's actually going to be even more dramatic in its change than iPhones have been than the internet has been and on the shock absorber over many seasons we've been talking about how interesting it is that new technologies bring new ways of living and new ways of living bring new values and then it's it's really interesting that the church often is slow to adapt to change and so our whole idea of the shock absorber is that it's good for 
older Christians to be talking to younger Christians all the time about the changes that are ongoing in our society because our society is constantly changing and young people tend to be on the forefront of change. They're not always got the right impression on how to adjust to it, but often they do come up with uh, new ideas about how we as Christians can engage with new ways of living. Uh, so we got a lot of influence from Mark Center over the last few seasons. Mark Center wrote a book called The Coming Revolution of Youth Ministry where he, he actually goes back to look forward. He goes back to the Industrial Revolution and he looks at the first Industrial Revolution in the 1800s and looks at what a massive impact steam engines had on humanity and says that you know the world of uh, pre-steam age uh, was more like the Roman Empire 2,000 years earlier than it is like today. So even though we're only two or 300 years uh, beyond the Industrial Revolution, the way people lived before the Industrial Revolution looked a lot more like people who've lived for thousands of years. They're agrarian society, people living in villages, um, mostly human labour driving most of what we do or animals. But all of a sudden you make a steam engine and it changes everything. Like people are migrating from the villages to the cities. You get these huge growth in cities. There's uh, factories replacing cottage industries. You've got machines replacing cattle in the fields, uh, big steam tractors now ploughing fields, things like that. So it changes work, changes a whole heap of things, and it actually means that people relate to each other differently. So instead of older people and younger people needing each other, they don't anymore. So, for example, young people used to rely on old people because the old people had the knowledge of when to plant mm. and when not to plant, and the young people were needed by the old people because they had the strength to plant and to harvest and stuff. But when you have machines, the machines replace that. And all of a sudden in the industrial age, new ideas become more powerful than old ideas. So, in fact, young people don't need older people anymore, really, as much as they used to. Uh, my uncle used to be a panel beater, and in the 19, oh, what was it, probably 1990s, he was about to retire, but he ended up retiring early because he said all his students were coming in and they've got all these latest machines in their shops that are fixing cars. And he's telling them how to get a hammer out and, you know, beat out a piece of metal to make it flat and bog it up and respray it and all that sort of stuff. And the kids were teaching him about the new machines that were doing things. And he said, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. These kids know more than I do because they've got these new machines. So if that was a dramatic change, how much more did the internet change how, how the generations need each other? And we're not relating like human beings have for thousands of years anymore, relating through machines. And so we're a lot more individualistic. We have our own choices. We don't need other people as much. And that's why individualism is growing in our context in these days. And if the internet was a big thing, then smartphones and social media took that to a whole other level. Uh, we particularly looked at a whole season on the 2010s to look at just how much the iPhone changed our world and how we as Christians are trying to react to it. Well, the futurists are saying, if you thought all that was a lot, wait till AI hit, kicks in because it's going to be almost as dramatic as the steam engine. The steam engine was the most dramatic change in human uh, interactions. Now, the futurists are predicting that there's a thing coming called singularity. And when singularity happens, it's a hypothetical point in the future where the growth of technology and artificial intelligence will be so rapid that it'll actually take over what people can do. And so we're going to get to a point, some people think, that machi machines and humans might even merge together. And the distinctions between what is biological and what's non-biological might actually start getting a bit fuzzy. And there's already a bit of that happening with robots. Like people are forming relationships with robots. You know, Is it going to be the case that in the future people are 
maybe arguing for rights for robots and things like that. So there's a whole heap of ethical questions that are going to come up because of this AI. And so when I look at this now, I think to myself, well, it's kind of a bit of a novelty. It's a bit fun, like it was when I first went online and, and, and I looked at Wikipedia for the first time or when I first got that disc, that DVD, and there was a whole encyclopedia on a dvd that i could search on a computer it was amazing and this is a bit like that now this is a moment where we're like wow you can get it to write an essay mm. and of course you know the education department bans students from using it to write essays so there is uh early reflexes in mm. these things where people all of a sudden see some of the dangers in it but also people are trying to work out how to use it but i think the third thing we need to be interested in is how will it change the society we're in and how do we as Christians bring the ancient message of the gospel to bear on these kind of technologies? Because some of the things are pretty frightening. I mean, just this week there have been heaps of uh, images on the internet of fake arrest of Donald Trump. So this week Donald Trump wow. in America has been saying he's going to get arrested. Yeah. And if, you just, if you're just if you listening to this now and you're in front of a computer, just, just look up AI photos of Trump being arrested. And there are hundreds of photos of Trump <laughs> running away from the police, wow. uh, being wrestled to the ground by the police. Some of them look a little bit fake, but some of them look pretty, pretty hard to distinguish between reality. Especially and if you only glance at them, right? Yeah, if you just glance at them. And especially if they're a small photo on an iPhone, you can't really distinguish that it's a, a completely made up piece of AI. So there's photos of Trump being wrestled to the ground by the police. He's running away. My favourite one's... We might be able to throw it up on the screen. He's got this 78-year-old Donald Trump running away from the police who are chasing him down the road. Yeah, sprinting down the road. So, yeah, this is the other thing people are saying. Like, how are we going to be able to pick? As this stuff gets better and better, how are we going to know if we can trust a photo? Once upon a time, a photo was evidence that something had happened. But we've always had doctored photos, but increasingly it's going to get more and more difficult to distinguish what's real and what's not. So there's a lot of ethical considerations, a lot of difficulties around that. But, um, yeah, it will change our society, I think, which is really, really long a- answer to your question. But no, that's, that's what I think is really interesting. That's why it's really interesting. Uh, Tim, I thought I'd get your reaction on that. But also, um, didn't you get didn't you test ChatGBT one day and ask it to write a 10,000-word sermon for you or something? Oh, no, I hadn't done that. I'd send someone else oh, okay. uh, play around with that. Um, <laughs> and uh, actually, I heard a story this week from one of my colleagues. He was doing some training with a, a group and we're getting them to think about vision statements for children's and youth ministry and they all were you know writing stuff in they submitted and he's collecting and looking at the, at the front and there was one that really stood out as being quite sharp and he thought oh that's interesting i wonder if they've just nicked their church's one rather than coming up with one uh, and so he then googled the phrase um come up with nothing and he's like oh well obviously they just they haven't nicked that from their church um and he he made a comment to the, the group he was teaching um and just said oh uh who, like, who's reading this one? This one's um, quite good. And someone sort of cheekily at the back said, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite good, isn't it? It's, um, it's quite a mechanical or something. <laughs> I can't remember the phrase. But he, he looked and he goes, did you use chat, GP? And they're like, yeah. And mm. they, they, he just typed in, give me a vision statement for a youth ministry, mm. evangelical youth ministry. And what had popped out was good enough. Like, it was fine. Um, and surprisingly good. And so they're, they're the kinds of things that, uh, like, ministry people have, you know, playing around with and some of it kind of in jest, um, but it wouldn't be long for in jest to become serious. And, like, well, mm. again, kind of like our friend Michael who uses it to polish up 
his photos and that saves a whole lot of time. Mm. If you've got um, ministers who feel the pressure to produce a unique sermon every week and there's a lot of pressure to, to get that really good, then to be able to type in and say, hey, can you write me a however many word sermon, a uh, 20-minute sermon on this passage, um, highlighting these things, giving me three points, you know, with, <laughs> with you know, acronyms that work together. Yeah, yeah, and, and it'll pump it out. Um, and you just do an hour of gloss over the top, make sure it's good. Um, and there we go. You've saved yourself how many countless hours. Um, and again, the question is, well, what are we actually valuing? What, what's the... Um, and part of the, the bigger picture, I think, here is also what is, what's the formational element of using these things and what's the formational element of us as people, as humans, um, and then particularly in the Christian setting, what's our formation of discipleship look like if, again, uh, swiftness and efficiency is what we value? You know, are we, are we going to be... or What kind of a disciple... Are we going to be formed into if we keep striving for efficiency rather than something like uh, the long, hard slog of praying um, to God and wrestling with Him about something that He doesn't seem to be answering? Like, what does that look like? Um, if we're formed by, uh, hey, Google, tell me what the key points of Ephesians 6 are, rather than sitting down with Ephesians 6 and just like working through it and reading it and reading it and rereading it and then going back into history and seeing what other people have thought about this thing from the early church right through to modern day commentators and yeah there's we are being formed into a particular people um, and what sort of a per- people are we being formed into um, if we choose different methods of getting there and mm. you know that's uh, that's the culture change isn't it it is yeah and what worries me Tim is um uh this ray Kurzweil thinker he he's talked about the fact that he thinks by the end of this decade computers will have the emotional intelligence mm, to convince people yeah that's not the just the you know at the, min- at the moment it's still a bit mechanical and it's just like you use the word mechanical but what happens when they become emotionally intelligent mm. in their responses um but my my concern is for christians using this stuff is where's the spirit like when I yeah. produce a sermon, the first thing I do is pray and read the text and then, you know, there's none of that in this. It's a machine. Because God's word so, is made for humans, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Well, it's a machine. So, it, But it's, it's going to have this kind of non-biological intelligence that's, uh, again, according to a quote from Kurzweil, he, he thinks that by the 2040s, non-biological intelligence will be a billion times more capable than biological intelligence. Wow. Mm-hmm. Now, that may or may not be the case, but what happens when it is? It's going to be smarter than us, but it's not going to have the spirit. So I think mm. that's a fascinating mm. thing to think about, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we kind of talked about, um, the reason we got onto ChatGPT was you were talking about it summarised the Vans book. Mm. Um, just to go back to that, I was interested to say how it was culturally significant for yourself. Why? Why was that? Yeah. So, um, I mean, Vans. Um, I'm not sure when Vans started. I can ask ChatGPT. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I grew up in an era that uh, culturally was dominated by Los Angeles surf and skate culture. And so the the bands, the clothing, um, the image of that kind of culture was what was really predominant um, and really attractive to me um, during my high school years in the 
mid to late 90s. And so, yeah, Vans was a big part of that. Um, I think I knew more, I knew Vans first because of their music festival. Uh, oh, and yeah. so the Vans music festival was all about getting um, punk um, bands and putting them all together and showcasing because it was the music of the skate scene. Um, and, I mean, Vans was around a lot longer than the 90s, but... 1966 uh, it was started. 66, yeah. So he's, he's decades before the 90s. But um, one of the things he did do really early on was he wanted to identify with the skating culture in particular. Um, and so he moved his family to Los Angeles and he went and hung out at um, all the skate parks. And Stu can tell us about the history of Dogtown and other things like that but that's where he was hanging out with that early um skater group um and he was learning from them what did they like what did they enjoy what patterns did they like what did they need in a shoe um and so he was intentionally engaged with them and i think he had some sort of affinity in terms of values with what they were trying to produce as a as a sport, as an art form, he was aligned with that. He wanted something that was, um, it was casual but purposeful. Um, he liked the expression that they had and so he worked really closely with them. And so, yes, you get to, you know, the 90s, you know, three decades later um, and it's really well established that he is, that the Vans is connected with the skate world which connected with the, the punk world um, musically and so that was really significant for me. So I think I I heard of the brand because I heard because of the bands that I was interested in were all playing at these same festivals. Um, Vans Warped Tour did um, a number of tours in Australia. Um, I think I went to one maybe, um, but I went to a lot of the side shows whenever these bands would come out, and you know, you'd see just the one or two that you wanted to see. Um, and so yeah, those kinds of things were really significant for me. And so yeah, when I uh, and, and still now I enjoy the clothing. Um, yeah. How many pairs of Vans do you think you've owned in your life? Oh, I don't know, a dozen maybe. I don't buy a lot of shoes. That's yeah, still yeah. quite a lot. That's 12 pairs of shoes. That are yeah, I mean, I buy thing. a pair and just wear them until they die. And, <laughs> yeah. um, so my podiatrist keeps shaming me because he says they're terrible for your feet, man. They just keep wrecking you. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, they're terrible. They're awful um, in terms <laughs> of, you know, actually if you've got something wrong with your foot, which I do. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so he's, he's slowly convincing me away. Well, the, sad. well, the reason that we talked about that was because uh, you brought up the story of Vans um, when we were ch chatting as a staff a few weeks ago. And Stu, I'd, I'd love to you because you actually brought this up in the staff meeting and kind of challenged us on our strategy for, from an opportunity that you were kind of presented with. I was just wondering about kind of shift away from ChatGPT for a bit. Why did you decide to challenge us as a staff meeting and as, as, a, as a kind of our senior pastor, as a leader? And why why did you think you needed to challenge our strategy just to make sure was it just to make sure we're all aligned still aligned? Yeah, well, we were we were talking last year in our planning day that it would be a really good idea in our second decade as a church to uh, to pause and just to reflect on the first ten years of our church and then to look forward to the next ten years, and we did that as a church community, and the way we did that was to look at. The three questions. One was, why do we do what we do? Second one was, how do we do what we do? And the last one was, what do we do in practice in our church? And our why for our church is our theology. What does the Bible teach? And we've come up with a phrase 
uh, in the first 10 years of our church that Jesus changes everything. And we've picked that because we want Jesus to be really clearly um, part of our vision statement as a church. And we've also uh, wanted to have some kind of a sentence that helps us to vibe off that to talk about our reformed evangelical theological perspective that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he changed everything and he continues to change lives one at a time. Mark chapter 1, um, verse 14 and following, Jesus uh, comes and talks about the fact that he's come to bring the kingdom of heaven to, uh, to, to respond to him by believing in him and repenting of sin. And so what we are called to do uh, in our day and age is to continue to partner with Jesus as he builds the church, as he changes everything. So we talked about that last year, that it's Jesus who's building his church and all we're doing is partnering with him uh, in a small corner of the world to participate in that awesome, exciting vision. So we're actually trying to say that our why for our church is actually that we're partnering with Jesus in what he's trying to do. And so the, the response from us is to express that. So how do we express that? How do we partner with Jesus? And we came up with another sentence, which is to share the truth and love of Jesus to everyone everywhere. So we've been quite convicted that it's a really exciting project to be a church for all ages and all stages so that we can all come together to, um, uh, to express the reconciliation we have with God that Jesus won for us on the cross and to express our new relationships with one another as a result of that. And actually when people who are different come together, that actually brings glory to God because people see people who wouldn't normally hang out with each other and they go, how come that's happening? So that's uh, how we talked about partnering with Jesus. And the third thing is, well, what are we actually going to be involved in doing? And so uh, we've talked a lot about the fact that the verse Matthew twenty two thirty seven to 40 where Jesus is asked what's the most important thing has been really influential to us because Jesus responds with love God and love others and so if we're going to love God with everything with all our heart and mind and soul and love our neighbor as ourselves, then you know that that's really exciting practice for our life to to love others and we thought about that and we thought, who are our neighbours that we're going to love? So our neighbours are Christian neighbours and people who aren't Christians. So the best way to love Christian neighbours is to to be disciple and to disciple others, to be committed Christians who are discipling one another so that we can be on mission together to, to go on mission to our neighbours that aren't Christians. So the practice of discipleship and mission was really, really quite a... A practical thing that we could be on about in all our ministries across the church. Uh, so, so as we were reflecting on that for the last ten years, we talked about having a bit of a goal for the last ten years, which we wanted to aim at. And for better or worse, ten years ago, we picked let's try and see if we could plant ten churches by 2020. And I originally said to the team, why don't we try and plant 20 churches by 2020? Because that sounds <laughs> pretty neat and everyone said that sounds really crazy so we got we got back to 10 and the funny thing is we didn't even get to 10 we only got to six so i'm glad we stuck with the 10 but i was really stoked about that because that's really exciting to have 10 different gatherings um meeting together serving jesus partnering with him and uh so we thought what are we going to do for the next 10 years and we thought well if our why is that jesus is changing everything if he continues to bless us the way we are then in the last 10 years as a church, we grew from 30 people to around 500 people. So we thought if, God, if Jesus continues to be generous to us and continues to use us in the same way, 
then we'd be kind of doubling up in the next 10 years. So we thought to ourselves, if, that, if God does do that amongst us, how do, we, how do we double up our discipleship? How do we help our Christians in our church to grow in their Christian maturity? How do we help our leadership team to double up and grow? How do we have healthy congregations? That, that were three things we thought about within discipleship. And then in mission, it was like, how do we equip and empower more individual evangelists? How do we do better partnership evangelism when we work together for evangelism? And how do we, um, you know, see people come into the kingdom uh, under God? And so as we talked about those things, um, we talked about that and that was great. But another thing that's been going on in the last few years is that I started a PhD a few years ago and I've been doing some interviews and doing some ethnographic research into what what's going on with Solis and why... Why is Solis um, growing the way it is and things like that? And one of the big themes that's been coming out, of course, is, is relationships. We've, we've really sought to, uh, you know, I mean, Paul in Thessalonians says, didn't I not come and preach the gospel to you and share my life with you? So I think that preaching and sharing the life has been a really key distinctive of what we've done as a church. And we've also been really influenced by the idea of friendship. Uh, not only in the last 10 years, but before that as a youth group for 20 years, we've been really influenced by John fifteen fifteen, where Jesus says, I no longer call you a servant because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but I call you friends. You are my friends if you do what I say, which is to love one another. Now, in our particular part of the world, you know, in, you know, obviously, as you, know, the New, you read the New Testament, the New Testament talks about the Christian church being like a family, like being like a body, like being like a building being built together as a spiritual house. But interestingly, in John 15, 15, Jesus uses this phrase, friends, to his disciples. And when he's talking to his disciples, as you're my friends, is the implicit in that, in my opinion, is that they're friends with each other as well as being friends with Jesus. So I, I think that's been quite a powerful idea amongst us in our part of the world where in we've talked about the impact of industrialization on us and we've become more individualistic and less focused on family but people still have very deep abiding relationships as friends in our culture so it's almost like a redeemable uh, category to redeem where we can say you know many young people in our area come from broken families where they might only see most of their family at Christmas maybe once a year um, sometimes in Australia where we live, families move all over the place, so they don't actually be on mission together. They're more likely to be spread apart doing their own things. But when you look at friends, the redeemable part of that for me is that it's interesting that friendship is something where people tend to have a common goal together. And Jesus actually says, you're my friends if you do what I say, which is to love one another. So that's something we've leaned into in soul revival not exclusively we still celebrate that we're a family we celebrate that we're a body and all those other great uh metaphors that the bible gives us but we've also thought the commitment we have to jesus and the commitment we have to each other is really helpfully expressed in friendship and we're friends based on being friends with jesus so that means we're friends based on achieving what jesus's goals are which is to love God and to love others as Matthew 22 says so what we paused at in the staff meeting was to ask ourselves the question is this still what we're on about are we still being friends because there is a, a great deal of cultural cachet in that term for us in our part of the world that uh, you know and there's also some misunderstandings in our part of the world about what friendship is is friendship just people that you ha are the same age or have 
a lot in common with, you know, is friendship that I have with just two or three people very intensely or is friendship something I can have with a lot of people. But it actually opens up those discussions about relationships because unfortunately when a lot of people in our part of the world go to church, it's almost like they're going to the movies together. They go with a group of friends to the movies. They don't talk to everybody else in the movie theatre. And like that, sometimes going to church can be a bit like that. You go with a group of friends to be with your friends. You go to church, but you don't talk to everybody else in the church. You have no intention being friends with Mm. everybody. Whereas what I like about this all-age, all-stage idea and this idea about being friends with the people Jesus is friends with, well, it opens up my horizons and then all of a sudden I'm pushed to ask the question, can I be loving everyone as my neighbour, not just the people I choose? Because when Jesus was pushed on it, when he said, love your neighbour, he was asked, who is my neighbour? And he told the story of the Good Samaritan, which was intended to say, everybody is your neighbour, even... Uh, you know, Jesus even in, in Matthew 5 talks about loving even your enemies. So, you know, it's a whole heap of stuff we could talk about there. So, yeah, so that idea of being friends with people because they're friends with Jesus is actually, I think, in some contexts, particularly in ours, pushing us to really ask that question of what does it look like to be the church? Uh, as does family. It's very powerful, um, empowering methodology to to really vibe that as well but yeah i think as a staff i really wanted to think we've been particularly committed to the idea of working as a team we've been particularly committed to the idea of being friends with more people than just some people who are like us who are in the same class who are in the same age group who are the same race the same um excuse me have having the same interests in common so rather than going to church to look for people who are like me so that I can then express my community with those people at dinner parties or going to movies or, or what it might be outside of the church, what does it look like for us to come to church to sit uh, together, uh, to listen to God's word, to praise him in song, to pray to him, to listen to his word and then he- hear that explained and then for us not just to symbolically relate to one another but to actually have dinner together and actually sit down with people who we wouldn't normally talk to to actually get to know them that's a way of being friends that is new that maybe other parts of our society haven't got onto but it's not new it's actually old that's the way the church used to be (laughs) but it's only changed since the 1970s so it's almost like a back to the future strategy that we've got so i wanted to say to the church before we move forward in the next 10 years particularly to the staff team I think this starts with us as staff. Like, Are we happy to mm. be committed to Jesus and committed to each other like this? Or do we see our relationships with each other in the staff team in our church as economic, that I'm actually here at the moment? Yes, I'll be really close with you while I'm here, but I'm kind of paid to be a part of this group. And then, Or, or is there a deeper commitment that we've had in the past to, to loving others that we've done together, a partnership with Jesus and with each other that we've chosen to opt into and can opt out of at any time. But does that mean we can actually see that um, we as a staff team don't only want to be pastors to our congregation, but also friends and actually allow them to be our friends and to think I'm prepared to actually be friends with the people I go to church with like I would be friends with some of my mates that I used to go see bands with in the 90s. Would I be willing to actually open up my life to these people who are Christians who might be a bit different to me? So that's what we looked at. Yeah, I think that's um, fascinating. Um, and I remember when you did it, there was uh, different people in the staff saying we had different reactions to yeah, it. Some yeah. people were like, 
very firm, no, we are not changing what we're doing. Others were just at least engaging with it. I was yeah. interesting, Tim, what was your reaction to what Stu was talking about? Because I did ask, that. do we still want to be friends? Didn't yeah. I? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was one of those firm, absolutely, we still want to be friends. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I mean, part of that comes from, uh, I mean, I've, I've been you know, fully indoctrinated in solar Bowl for the last 30 years, so I've got no same, shame. Same. And, <laughs> you know, just, years, but yeah, uh, yeah I, I already that. Uh, but I, I've seen the value of it. And um, and also it the the adventure of Soul Revival, yeah. of doing church together, um, has been the defining characteristic mm, of what um, my wife Ros and I, we have chosen to do together. So... Yeah, we, um, yeah, we we've bought, you know, in the Shire a place, or actually we were renting for a long time and never thought we'd probably never buy because we didn't think we'd ever be able to afford to buy. That's the Sutherland Shire, south of Sydney. Yeah, so, yeah, in south of Sydney, um, as price yeah just skyrocket. Um, but again, we were like, well, that's that's fine. I mean, if we rent for the the rest of our lives, that's okay because what is the, the dominating feature of how we make decisions as a family is that we want to be connected with Soul Revival. Yes. Um, and so that was our decision. And then, yeah, we got to a point where actually we were both working full-time. We thought, actually, maybe this is, we can pull this off. Um, and so we did buy, but we bought locally, like right next door to church. <laughs> and church wasn't always necessarily going to be here in this factory, but um, we, we knew it was always going to be located here in the Sutherland Shire in south of Sydney. And so... That's where we make our decisions from. And we have chosen jobs based on being able to be con- part of Soul Revival. And so it was a very firm, you know, no, don't change, yes, stay friends from us um, because like, then this is what we want to do. And, um, and I said in the meeting that you know, if I just wanted to be polite gospel acquaintances with you guys, um, there's, there's, I'm trying not to blow my own trumpet, but there's plenty of jobs on there that I could go for and I could see you guys at um, you know, annual events where all the Anglicans kind of get to hang out together and see and go, oh, how's your last year been? But no, I don't want that. Like, I don't just want to be nice gospel acquaintances. Uh, I want to be friends. Um, I want to prioritise these relationships. I want to prioritise the ministry that is going on here because I see the value of um, the relationships being the driver. Um, and uh, the, the last, I think it was the last episode we recorded, which was a number of months ago now, but we were talking about the balance between relationships and efficiency. Um, and instead of prioritising, you know, the, and a, and a, a professional excellence and an efficiency, that we were prioritising relationships. Um, and it's, it's not that we're being lazy and that we don't want to have good, effective ministry, but we actually measure effectiveness according to how well the relationships are functioning um, and whether we are um, being friends with those who we're in ministry with. And so we're not going to um, toss people under the bus if they get in the way of ministry because actually it's the people who we're doing ministry with that is a key part of the ministry. Um, And so we put a lot of effort and time into each other we, community is really essential to what we do spending you know long periods of time with each other like all of our gatherings are intentionally structured to have a meal attached to them because a meal slows you down um, and it slows down the relationship and it forces you to actually not be quick and efficient in your church time and it encourages you yeah yeah it encourages you to say hey we're gonna 
we're going to slow down. We're going to take more time than just an hour gathering um, and a service and ticking that off. But we're actually going to do that in the context of long-term relationships where we're spending a lot of time with each other, which then builds the quality of those relationships um, because you're spending more time with each other. The cool thing about that is you opt into that or opt out of it too. Yeah, like that's right. As we've had people commit to relationships like that, Tim, we've also seen uh, over the years 24 people go out into full-time ministry mm. into other churches from Soul Revival, which has been really exciting too. And many, many, many people go to other churches too. But there seems to have always been a group of people who are really excited about vibing that uh, idea of being friends and staying together long term. And, you know, the genesis of that idea came from a guy called Philip Jensen from the 1990s. I went to a conference and he said, rather than finding a job, then looking for a house and then looking for a church, what if you look for a church, then look for a job and look for a house? And I think that's what Tim's kind of vibing. Yeah, I think so. It's about challenging priorities and it's not about saying everyone has to do that. But like mm. Philip Jensen said in the 90s, what would it be like, look like if people yeah. look to commit to a local gathering of God's people to express their reconciliation? Yeah, it's And what I heard you say in that meeting, Stu, was um, this has been a defining priority of the staff team up to this point. Um, do we want to shift mm. focus so that this, it might still accidentally be true or it might still secondarily, third, tertiarily be true, um, but we're not going to prioritise it as the key thing which defines our staff team, therefore our leadership teams, therefore our church as it kind of you know cascades down from there. Um, and so my reaction, Joel, long <laughs> way to answer your question, uh, was no, I, th I think um, having this as one of the key priorities that we are striving towards um, as a defining value and characteristic of our church is absolutely where we should still be. Mm. Yeah, it was asking, it was just revisiting it. Yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, no, and I think it's that? important to challenge. Yeah, yeah sorry. I'm yeah, just yeah, saying yeah. as a leader, yeah, yeah. and I think yeah, as just and you're a senior yeah. pastor, it's important yeah. to challenge mm. Hey, we still we still mm. aligned with this. Mm. That's what I felt. Because it, it does help with the communication. It helps with the vibe of how we talk about what we're doing together. It's sort of, instead of, for example, we've got a couple of churches that have been more impacted by COVID than some of the others. Mm. And we're talking about maybe we could uh, have people who have capacity to be able to uh, go on mission to one of those other churches for a period of time to help rebuild some critical mass into those churches if they have capacity. But there's a few different ways you can approach that. If you know, if you go as, oh, I'm going to go and just for a very transactional, go in there and help you to run some of the ministries there, that's one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is to go but be not expecting to be super close with the people who are there. But then another way of doing it is, well, if they're our friends, then we're going to be friends with them and support them in that. And it just opens a whole heap of really fun mm. conversations about it. But yeah, Tim, I was going to ask you, like, so your your view of the history of Vans, how does that how does that dovetail with that concept of friendship mm. there that we were talking about? Because it was a good link when you brought up a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so the, the connection to me was um, there came a point in uh, Paul Van Doren's life, um, my friend over here, Chat GPT, tells me it was 1984. Um, <laughs> 1984, where, ooh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what where, did you say, ooh? Mm, 1984. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Sorry, the book. All right, got it. Yeah, oh, yeah. George Orwell. Yes, George um, Where Paul... Uh, as the original founder, um, he's, he's decided to step away um, and I think he got into horse racing, if I remember correctly. Um, he was <laughs> just really, what, Yeah, what a random Yeah, he was just, he was, it was kind of a side hobby that Shoes, he really liked. horse racing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he handed the company over to his um, brother, 
um, and his, his brother's son, so his nephews. And part of what they did was they um, had some of the same vision that Paul had, but they also were just thought, oh, well, let's, let's maximise the reach that we have as a company. And so going outside of the original sort of skating community and the subculture that that was a part of, they started making shoes for basketballers. They started making shoes for all sorts of sports. They started to really diversify their product. They also made a whole lot of decisions on maximising um, profit. So they used lesser quality materials. Um, they started shifting um, production overseas uh, where it had been all American um, made uh, largely up to that point. Uh, one of the cool things I remember from the story was when he first, he built his first factory, um, he put a shop front out the front of that and that was one of his very first stores. Uh, and it was still in an era in the, the late 60s, early 70s where um, a lot of um, households were still creating their own clothes and so he would get women who were coming in saying oh, I'm making this skirt out of this material and people could hand him material and he would make custom shoes for them right, so they right. could have custom shoes to go with their particular outfit that they wanted and that was really important to him because he put one of his key values was making the customer feel really special um, putting the customer first all the time um, and helping them to realize what they wanted and um, and that was why he hung out so much with the skaters was he said, what do you guys actually want? Mm. Like, I'm not going to just give you a product and try and sell it to you. I want to hear from you. And he would hang out there with them and then you'd see them drawing on their shoes and making patterns. He goes, that's a cool pattern. Do you mind if I make a material out of that? And they're like, yeah, go for it, man. So a lot of the checkers that he became yeah. famous for, all that yeah. was just the things that he was picking up um, and making, putting the customer first. Anyway, so the I story goes- I seeing dudes getting uh, white shoes and drawing checks on them back in the 80s, yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so he's kind of taking that subculture and, and making products that people want to buy, making them, um, trying to make them as affordable but last as long as possible. Anyway, the long story is that his brother um, and his nephews uh, largely ran the company into the ground um, <laughs> because they tried, they, they lost focus. And this is the way that Paul tells the story is mm. that they, they shifted the idea away from let's put the customer first, let's make it, authenticity is the name of the biography, it's also like that was one of his key values. It's all about being authentic. Um, but this chasing after products, marketability, bigger reach, um, lesser quality products, shipping everything off straw, um, actually did the opposite of what they were intending. Diluted it. Massively. And it diluted it, yeah. And so they lost their focus and they um, and it got to a point where the um, I don't know if it was the brother or a board perhaps, but they came back to him and said, you really need you to come back. It was kind of a bit like Steve Jobs' mm. Apple story, where it's kind of, man, we've, we've stuffed it. Like we've really ruined it and we're about to go bankrupt. Um, we really need you to come back and see if you can fix the mess that we're in. And so he came back and changed a whole lot of things and wasn't able to fully get it back to where it was because culture had also moved on since then. So things like, you know, offsite, offshore, manufacturing and things he was just kind of like that was just had to continue so but he was able to bring back some of that authenticity um he cut a whole lot of lines um said well, we're not we're not a basketball company we're not going to try and make basketball shoes um and all these other different sports you know we're not into soccer boots so why are we making soccer boots it's not part of who we are it's not part of our you know and so he focused really focused again and then it exploded again um, that's interesting yeah, yeah. Mm. and so you were saying the relevance for us well the relevance for us was i'm just like well no we've actually uh 
one of the reasons that I see it as, as both a participant but an observer of soul revival is um, that God has blessed us with uh, numerical as well as spiritual growth. And I think it's this prioritization of um, community. Um, we talk about third place a lot and the values that that has and family, sorry, friendship as being really key marker of how we actually do community and even if those who come and check us out um, can't articulate those things my feeling is that that's what they're noticing and so we have a lot of people who come through and say oh you guys do things just a little bit differently and actually that was one of our phrases when we first launched the church is it's church but a little bit different Um, and that's what people are noticing because theologically uh, we are aligned with every other Anglican church in our area, um, Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, um, you know, community congregational churches. Like we would all tick the same theological boxes all the way down, um, and our gatherings even look very similar to most other churches in the area. Yeah, yeah we have songs, we have prayers, we have a Bible reading, we have a sermon. Um, there's an announcements time where we share about the news that's going on in the community. You know, the run of the service pretty much looks like it will in a lot of other places. Um, and yet people come and they go, but it feels a bit different. And then they, they've got the meals and they just, you guys feel really different. Um, and what we try to articulate um, is that the theology is the same, but our strategy is different. And one of the defining things for our strategy is this emphasis on friendship. And so that's where I, the immediate thought with Vans was, yeah, we could... Um, Potentially, we might be able to grow numerically uh, by diluting some of the values and prioritising some other things. Mm. Um, but I've got a bit of a hunch that actually, no, the, the strength of Soul Revival uh, actually comes from prioritising these particular values. Um, and so to lose those and think that we would grow, it feels a little bit like you know, Jim Van Doren, the brother, thinking, oh, if we diversify our product, if we make it cheaper, um, make it offshore, use different products, will actually grow the company and it backfired. Um, and that's what I was, you know, my, my heart uh, went, oh, I, I don't want us to think of the same thing. I don't want us to take away these values to dilute the things that actually make us strategically different mm. um, for the sake of potentially we might see these things happen um, when actually it's the those key strategic values mm. that actually make it, a place where people come and go, oh, yeah, like you're teaching the same thing as down the road, mm. but it feels a bit different. And then for the non-Christians who are coming who don't have a lot of church history or may not have had church history in the last 10 years, they come in and the the value of friendship, they come and they experience that and they go, um, I'm not sure if what you're saying is true yet, but I really like being here. Um, and we've had people that have stuck around for 10 years um, who have kind of got that – I, we're still not convinced about Jesus, but you, the the value you guys have placed strategically on meals, friendship, community, third place um, means that I want to be here. I want to prioritise this group of people over my weekend, over all the other things I could possibly be doing, even if I'm not yet convinced of the Jesus thing. And by God's blessing, we've seen a lot of people who have had that journey and come to a place with like actually and I also believe this Jesus thing which is where like party on like that's that's why we do it and I think I think it just gives people a long amount of time just to think through Jesus so the preaching is about 
saying that the way you belong in this community is if you belong to Jesus. So the way you belong is if you put your faith in Jesus and become one of the children of God. Um, uh, so, you know, Jesus says that we're actually adopted into God's family and that uh, that it's through him that we are a community. So we don't build community, he builds community, we just express it. But as we express it, people delight in that expression, enjoy being a part of it, and stick around to listen some more. And also we try and have gospel conversations with people who have faith and don't have faith. So it gives people a chance to digest it. And, you know, we've got one guy who was uh, travelling along with us for the 10 years that you were talking about. Um, And then he became a Christian at 23 after being in the youth group for the whole of his high school time uh, and and then sticking around. And then after he became a a Christian he went to YouthWorks College and then he graduated out of YouthWorks College and now he's at Moore College, College which is quite quite, <laughs> uh, quite unusual but it, it's an interesting outcome of someone who's been thinking and talking about Christianity for mm-hmm. all that time and then came to a point where he's like oh, yeah I think I'm ready to make a decision now so some people can make a decision after they hear the first sermon about Jesus some people need to think about it for a while mm-hmm. so everyone's different mm-hmm. yeah and I think that key that focus um, I mean I think we need to probably wrap it up it's running out of time but the thing that I heard Tim was saying was that the focus on those key values on the strategy that you're talking about which I think you challenge us to make sure are we still aligned with them mm. translates into some other intangibles that went like unless you're really close to that and like the leadership is aligned on it then it's maybe not seen in the in yeah. the kind of wider yeah, environment yeah. to begin with yeah. like the Vans thing and all Apple's the same thing it's like well Apple's seen as one of the coolest companies now or it was now it's becoming it's come so big it's now seeing as like mm-hmm. a, an institutionalized thing but yeah it's those intangibles i think of something whether it's a brand or now we're talking about a church that um kind of set it apart but also that's because it's sticking so strongly to the core principles mm-hmm. and i thought that was real was really interesting when you brought that up a few weeks ago Stu. um and it's funny though <laughs> there were some different reactions to it as we were talking about but mine was like, well, I know Stu's not going to change. <laughs> so, <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Is that what you thought? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so I was like, well, and because I am, I think I am very aligned in what we do as a church. And I think that's something that we can keep talking about too, is that um, that idea of friendship. I think that's something we can keep exploring. Um, I think for me it was a case of asking, are we still want to opt into this, I think, yeah, too. So yeah. it's like, yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I'm still committed to it, but yeah, yeah, I was interested to see what everyone thought. Yeah, just people were allowed to have their own mm, reactions, and they were right. all very yeah. valid. But mine was like, oh, I'm just, yep, it's just not going to change what he's doing, and I'm okay with that. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> anyway, um, we may as well wrap up this, the um, the episode. Uh, if you have started listening to this episode again, it's quite different to all the other episodes. That we're just going to start talking about stuff, and I think important things to talk about in culture how we react to that as part of the shock absorber model and how we try and do church in in those ways and sticking to those values that we're talking about. Um, So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Stu and Tim, for being on the podcast as always. Um, I thought I might, before we just wrap up, here's a a tweet. You tweeted out back in December, Stu. We can talk about this next week, but I thought, like, let's give our listeners and you yourself a chance to think about it. Well, you said ministry is not about solving one problem at a time. It's about moving from one gospel opportunity to another. I'll leave that for you to marinate on for a week and we can get into it next week. But um, thank you very much for listening and recording. Uh, or recording. I'll say recording because uh, our producer, Eck, 
is recording it and editing for us. So thank you very much for that. Um, and as always, you can email me at joel at sugarsorbit.com.au if you have any questions or if you'd like, there's a particular thing you'd like us to talk about. Um, mm. It'd be really cool to do that. Uh, having said that, give us a like, subscribe, smash the smash the like button, as they like to say on YouTube. And uh, as always, we'll finish with a one way. One way. One way. One way.